2: Hugh Syme, a world-renowned graphic artist with the biggest names in music and the corporate world. Andy Wilson, an award-winning marketing and public relations executive with over 20 years of combined multi-level entertainment industry experience in the music and sports business. Now let's buzz.
3: Hello and welcome back to the Music Buzz podcast. I'm co-host Andy Wilson along with Dane Clark. How's it going, Dane? Great, Andy. How are you today? I'm great, thank you. How about uh, also Hugh Syme? How's it going, Hugh? It's going well, thank you for asking, Andrew. How are you? I'm awesome. Today, we welcome to the Music Buzz podcast, Mike Reno. Reno is and has been the lead singer for Canadian rock band Loverboy since the band's inception. Loverboy was inducted into the Canadian Music Hall of Fame at the 2009 Juno Awards. Their songs have been staples on classic rock and classic hits radio for over 40 years. Working for the weekend, Hot Girls in Love, Turn Me Loose, Loving Every Minute of It, Notorious, when it's over, and many, many more. Reno and the band have worked with the likes of some of the biggest producers and musicians as well. Mutt Lang, Bob Rock, Bruce, Herbert, Bruce Fairburn, John Bon Jovi, Jonathan Kane, and others have written songs and worked together. During the 80s, I mean, you couldn't get away from Loverboy. They were everywhere. Their own albums, also in movies like Top Gun. Mike, of course, sang on the uh, duet on the Footloose soundtrack, Almost Paradise, and many, many, many more. So we welcome today to the podcast, Mike Reno. Thanks for joining us, Mike.
4: Uh, Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. I just dragged myself from the cement pond.
5: (laughs) (laughs) You're going to fit right in with us today, Mike. Mike, uh, it is a pleasure to have you here, man, especially because you started out as a drummer. Tell us what got you interested in music to begin with, what led you to the drums, and then how you ended up as a vocalist.
4: What got me into the music scene basically was the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. It was the black and white. I remember one band was good and one band was evil. It was the good old. And, and so I was into the Beatles right off the bat, but the first uh, single that I bought, a 45, was Ruby Tuesday. So, I, you know, it was a mixed match for me. And that's when I bought a set of drums. I was a young kid of 11 and i started playing and my brother taught me how to sing backgrounds and be a kind of a support in his band and he was older than me and he he played guitar and it was kind of like i was the fill in guy when he when his real drummer couldn't make it or or skip town or uh, they'd call me up because they knew I knew all the songs on the drums and I knew all the background vocals. So I was kind of ready. I was waiting. I was in the wings, baby.
5: That's a great thing if you, if you to get a drummer who can sing backgrounds. I mean, those guys are going to get hired before a drummer who can't sing backgrounds.
4: I tried my best. And, you know, one thing led to another. When I started, after we moved to a small town in the Okanagan Valley, which is kind of in the mountains, we uh, my brother started in his band, so I started my own band. And so it was back when I was playing uh, all kinds of cool stuff. Greens, Clearwater, Led Zeppelin, Deep Purple. And I was drumming and singing and, you know, it was crazy. And then some of the guys I was playing with said, you know, all these bands have frontmen. They're talking to the audience. They're not standing, hiding behind the drums. So anyways, they brought in a guy who was a pretty damn good drummer. And so I tried being out front and just standing there, which was very hard at the beginning. But I kind of got used to it. And the next thing you know, uh, there was no more sitting behind and hiding behind the drums for me. I was I was running the show from up front.
6: I couldn't have done that. I, I, I was so grateful way before samples and singular keyboards that just run through your laptop, which is what we do now. It was nice to have a big Fender rose and piano and Mellotron and everything just to kind of hide behind
4: <laughs> do you remember hauling around the hammond b3 organ our
6: band didn't have one well actually ian wasn't a huge fan of hammond so we did more with fender Rhodes. and uh, i love hammond organ. i love it when it just sits in the weeds you know it's
5: a beautiful instrument the roadies never love it though
6: <laughs> they didn't like getty's double manual uh, mellotron either <laughs> right <laughs> i bet not
3: now, before we started with the intro and everything, Hugh and, and Mike, you guys were talking just, uh, we were making the comment that uh, we've never had two Juno Award winners on the podcast at the same time. So, And just for the listeners out there, that's not me and Dane. That would be Hugh and Mike. <laughs> Go down Canadian memory lane for us a little bit between the two of you. I, I, was, I was just
6: commenting on the fact that I was listening to Loverboy on the radio while I was drawing uh, Caress of Steel I remember thinking, what a great band they were. I mean, they they really hooky band. And I know that we all kind of came from the above the the the, the parallel, you know, in the uh, in the in the boondocks. But we were playing together at the same time. as triumph was emerging, and you guys were coming out. April Wine was was hard at it. Max Webster, Ian Thomas band. Yeah, it, it was a pretty magic time.
4: Those are all fantastic bands, man. I, that's how I kind of. I, I, I'm i totally with you there. I mean, I even, I'm friends with all these guys now. Huh? You know, Rick Emmett and the guys and uh, from Triumph and, of course, all the guys in, in uh, and you forgot Chilliwack. Remember Chilliwack? How great they I saw Chilliwack playing with Bonnie and Delaney
6: Bramlett. Wow. And a band called, oh, my God, I wish I could remember, Whitey, the drummer, was. Whitey uh, Glenn? Yeah. The guy played with Blue yeah.
5: Reed on the Rock and Roll Animal record? yeah well, he's a great drummer Good. yeah that's very Canadian. now
6: hugh are you canadian i'm actually from cornwall and then i, I moved down to to st Catharines for three years and then we moved to england during those magic five years from 64 to 69 um yeah so and then toronto and then new york for two years and la for 16 years and now i'm in indiana where my daughters live so I, I get to be close to them
4: that's great you got a real a real background in music for sure i was uh I wasn't sure who be who I'd be on with today, but that's it's an honor to, to meet you.
6: You too, man. Honestly, I've I've enjoyed your music for years. Um, I've always been offended that I didn't get a call from Loverboy to do an album cover, but that's a,
3: <laughs> yeah, I was, I was thinking the same thing. I mean, during that heyday, I mean, he was doing, uh, obviously all the rush stuff, but you know, Bon Jovi and kiss and white snake and all those covers you did during those years and no call from Loverboy. I mean, I, I guess you guys can work that out after the call today, but you know, maybe, maybe, maybe next time.
4: Well. C- records had a little something to say about that they had their own people doing stuff and it was a lot, a lot of stuff kind of happened by accident you know we got that one cover that the album cover that made the uh, top 1000 album covers of all time coffee table book which is a big, big one i thought that was kind of <laughs> cool and that was to get lucky record it's a great cover too I'm, i
6: remember seeing that cover and thinking how cool it was
4: yeah because the, the guy said the artist who was, was doing it, the, the photographer slash uh, designer, was saying, what do these guys look like? like? What do they wear? And they went, all we really know is he wears the singer wears red leather pants. And that was all it took to get this guy going, right? And then they said, well, what's the album? And they said they played it. And the album wasn't actually called Get Lucky. It was just something I said in, in the fourth song on the album, uh, Lucky Ones. I think it's the fourth song. I just yelled out, Get lucky you know, just in a moment of, of ad living. Yeah. And as it turned out they grabbed that. Yeah. And the leather pants mm-hmm. with the fingers. Yeah. And the history, right? Yeah. It's it's funny how it happens sometimes.
6: Well, absolutely. Yeah. Some sometimes the best the best album titles lurk somewhere in the lyrics. Yeah, I've I've discovered that over the years. And some bands come to me and they don't have a title, so the first thing I do is ask for their lyrics because that's a great way to to discover some turns of phrase that are perfect for for album titles
4: and you've done some amazing ones man
6: thank you man i appreciate that mm-hmm. yeah it's been a fun ride yeah for sure no and i understand what you i was only kidding when i said i haven't heard from Loverboy. i i do know how protective labels can be
3: so mike i've got a question so i was reading some stuff uh, the other day once we found out we were going to be talking to you it said that you guys made your live debut opening for kiss Uh, in vancouver in 1979 which would have been their dynasty tour tell us about that i mean that was your live debut is that right in this particular case we hadn't even recorded
4: a record but we'd made contact with uh our manager uh, that we were lucky enough to get and he would just finished uh, a bunch of years with bto so he was kind of the guy who was going to probably do it for us, but we hadn't even recorded a record yet. We're in rehearsal rehearsing. And at the time uh, we didn't have a bass player and a friend of ours was in town and he plays with April White, Jim Clinch. And he was, uh, he came by rehearsal hall. He was hanging out with us and, and cutting some, uh, you know, cutting some demos and recording on little four tracks and just having a little bit of fun with us. And we get a call from our manager. He says, listen, get your stuff together. You guys are playing tonight. I went, where? He goes, at the Coliseum. I said, in front of 17,000 people. He goes, yeah, you're warming up Kiss. And I went, dude, we don't even have a bass player. right wow. He didn't even know all the songs. And just to show you how much he didn't know the songs, we were the keyboard came on to, to intro, uh, Turn Me Loose. And this is in front of a huge audience. And I look over, and Jim Clinch, who's the bass player for April Wine, And he was just doing us a favor. I look at him and he's got this look in his eyes like a deer in headlights. He didn't know what to do next. So I kind of casually walked over to him. And in his ear, I went, do, (laughs) do, (laughs) do, (laughs) do. That's what he had to do next. And that's the kind of night it was. And every song was like that. We'd start playing it. And he'd he'd just start playing along with it, you know, whatever was going on. And, you know, we never got booed off the stage. Nobody threw anything at us. So we figured we did a pretty good job. Very nerve
3: wracking, though. I'll bet. And, and, and I mean, that's the band out of any. I mean, honestly, I mean, talk about a band to be thrown in with the Lions on. I mean, everybody in the audience is painted like the band. And here you are opening for. <laughs> Golly.
4: We figured for sure we were going to get killed, right. but uh, it came off without a hitch. And it's something that uh, it's almost like throwing us into the line. Right. Yeah, that's
3: Now, that would have been kind of towards the end of Kiss, KISS's 70s heyday. Did you have any interaction with the band that night that you can recall? Because we've had other people on the show where they open for KISS and they've had some great <laughs> stories. But do you recall anything specifically?
4: Um, it was in and out of that gig really fast. It wasn't a tour. It was one night. And the only reason I got the show is because the warm-up act that was following around... Canada wouldn't let him in the country. It was the New York Dolls. And I guess the border just went, nope, not going in.
5: (laughs) (laughs) Maybe not surprising. Yeah. (laughs) Not too surprising there. So So I got to Go ahead. Go ahead, Dane. Yeah, I was going to say American Songwriter had a feature with you guys. It kind of explained about how the the band got together when it was still Cover Boy. Go into that for us. But first, you met. Paul Dean by chance in the winter of 78 and you wrote a song that same night. So you must've known, wow, we got something going here. I mean, that doesn't happen very often. And that song came out on your first record. So kind of tell us about how you guys got together, what that how all that happened and it happened so quickly. And, uh, and how cover boy turned into lover boy.
0: Well,
4: in, in, in essence, I was just passing through town and this was, uh, Calgary which is in in Alberta and I had lived there previous so I was coming back just to kind of halfway point I was going to go down to Los Angeles and visit my brother and see what the music scene was like down in California and just I'd had I had a band in Toronto that I'd left and at the same time Paul had left a band uh, in Winnipeg after he would created the first album or two with them as a songwriter and guitar player and he was in a position where he was uh, not very happy. And I was uh, kind of curious to see what had damaged him so badly. And it turned out that he had been fired from his band at Christmas and they kept all his gear. I mean, talk about the triple whammy. Right? Oh, no kidding. So he was like... He had a guy who was looking after him a little bit. He, he let him rehearse in this big warehouse where they used to repair. Uh, in the old days, they used to b- repair uh, buses in there. So it was a big warehouse, and it was the middle of winter, so it was cold as hell. They had a, a heater in the top. I could see it now. It's like out of a Marlon Brando movie. It was blowing hot air down, and he was sitting in the middle of the room. I couldn't help but stick my head in and, and look at this guy, and he was sitting there cranking away on his groove, and he kind of glanced over as the door opened. And then he goes, "Come on in," you know. So, from that moment on, we've been working together ever since. It was one of those nights, and we sat and we talked. And I, and then he says, "We started working on this riff that turned into a song, and then it turned into another song, and in my my plans to go to California just got." canceled because there's no way I was going to leave. We were writing some songs that I thought were pretty pretty interesting. And when that happens, you kind of got to stand back and go like, time to change your plans. Mm-hmm. And luckily, I, sure. Paul and I have been together ever since. And that was in 1978, back in the old days.
6: Yeah, man.
5: <laughs> so how did you end up meeting the other guys that ended up being in Lovable?
4: Well, Paul and I decided to pick uh, to take our time picking out musicians because we wanted to have musicians that uh, not only could play together, but could hang out together and be, you know, do do the long haul thing and like hang out and maybe do some records and really get into it. And I, it, a lot of it has to do with the personnel. You know, you don't want people in there that really don't gel. So we had a lot of people come and go. And then we settled on the Paul and I, and our, our keyboard player was in town. He was working with another band, but whenever he wasn't working with them, he'd come and he'd play some stuff with us. And we thought, she's just, this guy's really good. So he was a good guy. He was a great player. So he was in the hard part was finding a bass player and a drummer. You know, I can tell you stories for days about this, but we tried 40, 40 different drummers out. And I knew that Paul Dean wanted the drummer from his last band, but there was a bit of bad blood there. So I had to do all the negotiating. (laughs) Paul said, I can't talk to him, but that's the guy I want. And I knew that he wanted that guy. That's the guy we got. And we've had him for 40 years.
3: Yeah, Matt. And that's Matt, for,
4: yep. fantastic drummer. Yeah.
3: I was looking on that first record. You guys had Bruce Fairbairn producing Bob Rock Engineering and Mike Frazier as the assistant engineer, all three of which went on to have amazing careers. What was it like working with those three on you know your record?
4: And how long did it take? We had a bunch of songs together and we played a few nightclubs. Record companies would come and see us in the nightclubs and most everybody passed except one guy. And he said, "I, I hear it. I hear it. I see this. And so we had a kind of a skeleton budget, which means we had to go in the studio already prepared, but we had the benefit of playing all these nightclubs. So we were pretty, we were pretty tight, but the deal was we went in and did this whole record mixed it out and in the can in five weeks, which was wow. you know, crazy. But we were all together. Bruce Fairburn was like his first project. Bob Rocket was his first engineering project. He was in a he was a guitar player in another band. And for side money, he used to engineer and he was pretty damn good at it. our second engineer, the guy who put the tape on and got the chords and set up the microphones and got the coffee. He's now produced an A C D C album. So this everybody in this room including the band members and all the people working on it just, just rose right. right to the top together.
3: That was the thing that stuck out to me on that record is like everybody, not just the great songs, but everybody that was involved in it went on to, that was like the root of everything, which is really cool. All the parts are very organized on that mm-hmm.
4: record. Bruce Fairburn, our producer, he was uh, one of these guys that just let us do what we do. He was smart enough. I think after I think about it, just to let us play. He, he, he heard, the songs and just went, these songs sound fine. So, and we also said to him, we don't really wanna have to play live with eight guitar tracks behind us because there's only one guitar player. So let's just keep it simple. And and so the guitar would do something, the keyboards would counteract it. The drums were steady and solid, at the bottom end. And the vocals came in and did all the melodies and shared the lyrics. That's kind of how it was.
6: You made a comment, which I I, I thought was interesting. And and I've often wished the band that I was working with would have done this. Sometimes a band will rehearse and go into the studio and they're super tight. I mean, the rehearsals are going really well. And you spent maybe six weeks getting that ready. But only when three months go by and you play that album, you play the music out on the road do the songs really gel and, and come into focus? Did you guys play them out or did you always play them privately, rehearse them and then record them before you, you released them? were playing them?
4: them in clubs, right? Well, we, yeah, we had the opportunity to uh, play. And a lot of times we would take the whole unit and go out of Vancouver. Vancouver is kind of a metropolis, big city. And, you know, you got a sophisticated kind of people. So we went out of town. We went to the small cities. We went over to the islands, which is, you know, that ferry right away and we played on all these cities and we just we we watched people to see who was going to come up to the dance floor we watched to see who was going to the bathroom you know what i mean you could tell
5: yeah great way to do it and when you went out on the road after your record came out you could sound just like your record i mean i saw boston open up for fleetwood mac in 70 i want to say 76 and they hadn't figured out how to do that yet you know that was like <laughs> right. 500 overdubs on it, and there's one guitar player out there. They figured it out later, but you guys didn't have to figure it out later.
4: That's the simplicity uh, that I like. We had a thing where the guitar player would do one thing, the keyboard player would answer it, you know, and it was like a a balance. And I and then it was really simple. And I think the songs are the things that made it, you know, the way it is overdubs if we started doing overdubs it just doesn't seem like us so we just didn't do them
5: that was smart you didn't need them those melodies from those records i mean they never go away the
4: temptation to overdub
5: is
6: obviously intrinsic to where we've all come from when you hear sergeant pepper and you hear the beatles and they clearly decided they wouldn't care whether they could play it live or not unless they had 17 people join them on stage to pull it off you know it it makes sense that a band like yours would want that to be um, reproducible. Rush did that too, I think, pretty well. They, they adhered to what they could achieve live. Every once in a while they would deviate from that, grow another arm, you know, another foot, you know. But yeah, it, I, think it's, I think it's admirable that a band sticks to what they can do in one pass.
4: I agree. the I, the The part about Boston, I I when I first heard Boston, I could not believe the sound. It was like a wall of sound, and I went, "This is unbelievable." But I just said to myself immediately, "I went, how will they ever do this live?" Right
3: on their first tour, they didn't. I can tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of first tours, you you tell you told that Kiss story, but I was looking after the record came out that first one and just you know did so well. But you guys were. Man, you guys were out with Cheap Trick, ZZ Top, Kansas, Def Leppard, went on the tour with Journey in 81. I mean, you guys were there at that pinnacle of, of Arena Rock, right? I mean, tell us about those years and just kind of, you know, what a whirlwind that must have been. MTV also. Yeah, yeah, yeah. into in MTV from there. Yeah. Couldn't get away yeah. from your videos either, you know? Yeah. Fantastic.
4: MTV was something that really changed the life, our lives. You know, you know a lot of groups, you never knew what they looked like. Like, you remember what the guys in 10CC or uh, groups like that, Superdraft, you remember what they looked like? Not really. And then all of a sudden, a uh, record company asked us to meet in Albany, New York, and shoot some film. That's all they said. And so what happened is we just played a whole bunch of songs, changed our clothes, played a whole bunch more songs. They took pieces... Uh, that they recorded, threw a bunch of other things into it to make it interesting. And then they sent it to this new company in New York that was playing these these movies that we shot 24 hours a day. I mean, they needed 24 hours of, of stuff. And Loverboy handed them three of these videos the first week they were open. It basically changed our lives for sure. But the big tour in 19, I thought it was 1982 when we went out with Journey because we had Get Lucky Out and Journey had Escape and that was their biggest album and it was our biggest album. And we were on tour together, and we are both on Columbia. I loved uh, Journey, I still do. Steve Perry's voice to me, there's a few people in this world that I just can't believe they sing great. One of them is Paul Rogers, Steve Walsh from Kansas, are you kidding me? And uh, Steve Perry, uh, those are three of my hugest, I look up to them like crazy. And I got the chance to tour with Kansas, and then I got the chance to tour with Journey. And, uh, you know, we did some amazing work together. I watched every concert after we did our show. I'd sit around and watch their show because I couldn't believe how good they were. And Journey were fantastic live, and so were Kansas. Fantastic live.
3: Okay, we're going to shift gears a little bit over to Hugh and talk about Album artwork, it's always a fun topic and and obviously relevant, always.
4: There's
6: so many ways to approach the subject. Sometimes we talk to um, musicians and people on this podcast that clearly have a a vested interest in artwork. Obviously, concept, accidental or otherwise, whether it's red leather and crossed fingers or, you know, uh, some bands are very driven by concept and some bands are more about the music. They just want to cut to the chase and, and uh, put out the album. You know, H- How involved were you when it came down to, uh, you said the label kind of took care of that. Did they design at you or design for you?
4: I don't know if you remember the first album. It was basically somebody on the album in a black t-shirt and black socks. Oh, spot. yeah, it's great. With the type smoking of yeah. cigarette. Yeah. Turned out this woman who actually took the picture of herself. Yeah. Yeah, she took a Polaroid. And she put it in a typewriter and she typed the lyrics to one of our songs onto the Polaroid. As it hit the Polaroid, it splashed and it gave us that splash type that we still use as the Loverboy logo today.
3: I like that cover, man. It's very, it's very, it's all like a punk rock kind of feel to it, I feel like.
4: That's what I thought, yeah. And we weren't really a punk rock band, but we had a punk rock cover. And I I couldn't believe I loved it as soon as I saw it. I went, "That's fantastic." That may have
6: served well in terms of the transition too, because in the late seventies and then into the eighties, having a cover that was nicely enigmatic—you know, you didn't know whether it was Patti Smith or Lover Boy or whatever—it just had a great, and it was a really arty. I hate to use that word, but it was a very artful image at the same time as it. it, it, it it was minimal and 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 you know it, it could have been for
4: Talking Heads it could have been for you know so many bands. I agree with you. That's that's what I kind of liked about it. You couldn't really put your finger on what this was. I think that was had a lot to do with maybe what people were looking at. Because remember in the old days, and you will remember this. And I say the old days that all of us I think on the screen here are from the old days. I, you know I say that respectively but we used to go and look for album covers and then you got to open it up and pull the thing up, read all the lyrics and see all the pictures. Yeah. So this was, this was an experience that was like awesome oh, yeah. to do. It's been lost in today's, in today's music thing. I think they everything don't have was,
3: was an experience, even buying concert tickets. I mean, it used to be, you had to set the alarm, get up on a Saturday, drive someplace, get in line, get a lottery. ticket. I mean, by the time you got to a GA concert and got inside, it was like, you'd, you know, it's like you'd been at war. You know what I mean? It was amazing. <laughs> and the yeah. whole experience, yeah. back and and the, and and buying records the same. You're right. It's just um, and not to be old fashioned, but there was there was kind of a trophy moment. You know, when you got your concert ticket or you got that album and got it home, it was it was the whole experience. You actually sat and listened to
5: the whole record, instead of somebody listening to one song and on their iPad and and moving on to something else. I mean, back then you turned that record over while you were reading the rest of the liner notes and checking out that cover and going through the thing when you would go
6: out as a consumer 12 year old 16 year old consumer how drawn to covers were you or or were you more about finding that song you heard on the radio and discovering what the cover was as an afterthought or were you drawn to covers when you went to sam well i don't know what what your your stores were
4: but i want to ask you something hugh Do, do you remember the album covers that were designed by i think they were called hypnosis Oh, very well.
6: Are you kidding? I'm a huge fan of Storm, Joe, Poe, and and Hardy. Those three guys
4: did brilliant work, for sure, and they're very inspirational to me. I used to look for that those guys, and I said to myself, in in a dream world, it'd be nice if I could get them to do it or you. <laughs>
6: <laughs> oh, I, I, yeah. Well, I appreciate the uh, the afterthought. <laughs> so, what are some of your favorite albums uh, over the years? And when you think about covers, what what? What speaks to you?
4: Do you know what I thought had really cool covers was Supertramp? Tramp. Yeah. I don't know who did Mike Dowd. Oh, yeah. Is that Mike Dowd? Yeah. Oh, all these guys. So I, I should I should have known.
3: Yeah. Nice guy. Hugh did one of the Super Tramp covers.
6: Yeah, I did. Oh, cool. Yeah. Cool. Some things never change. It ended up being Prince Philip and uh, Queen Elizabeth having tea on the moon. But I originally wanted to have, uh, I had this dead ringer for, for Queen Elizabeth. She was amazing but she was $5,000 a day and the band just didn't, the, the band didn't want to be quite so deferential, but I had the concept of her on the sidewalk with the, the beef eaters and the, you know, the sentry the guards from Buckingham in the background and her two corgis yeah. on the sidewalk, her with a very, you know, opulent looking pooper scooper, you know, a gold pooper scooper <laughs> in her turquoise hat and coat um, with the title, some things never change. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's uh, it didn't manifest itself, but yeah.
4: Ten CC, they
6: did. They had some great covers. Fantastic, yeah, and great music. I was huge, huge fan, and I I didn't discover till much later that those guys were also instrumental in writing some of the best pop songs from the '60s. You
4: know, I'm kind of mentally going through my album covers. I can't look at them because they're in the other room. I wish I could come up with more. Tell me some of the album covers you worked on, Hugh. What would be the biggest album cover that you did?
3: I don't know how to answer that. Um, well, I, I do PR for Hugh, so I can name these in my sleeve if he can't remember them. So
4: <laughs> Well, I can remember
6: them. It's just each one has a place. You know, I mean, you know, working with Iron Maiden was a real treat, and an honor. Uh, working with Bon Jovi um, was fantastic. Uh, working with David and Whitesnake was lovely. Um, certainly my oldest and dearest friend. Band and friends and client was Rush. Did you do a lot of those? I did all but the first two. Yeah. Are you kidding me? Yeah, yeah.
4: I always look at the Rush covers. I'm trying to figure out what they were thinking, you know. And I go, "What were they thinking?" Because they're also they're very very interesting. Anyways, that's fantastic. Thank you. So when you when you write,
6: um, Mike, when you sit down to write, are you always thinking of the project? Always thinking of the entity? do you write for the band or do do you find yourself digressing and and kind of coming back to it later and going, shit, Willie Nelson would sing this beautifully, you know, or, or, um, I just wrote a beautiful ballad, you know, what motivates your writing and how, how free do you keep yourself while you're coming up with the music to just let the music happen? Or are you always tailoring your, your compositions to your projects?
4: It's funny when we, uh, when Loverboy plays a song, it sounds like Loverboy. You can really tell immediately who it is. No matter what we end up writing, as soon as Loverboy gets together and starts playing it, it immediately just sounds like a Loverboy record. Or the guys make we make it sound like that. We don't even think about it. It just happens that way.
5: Interesting. Yeah, yeah. And a band that's been together for 40 years, I mean, you don't have to second guess what the other guy's going to do at that point. Yeah, that's what makes it the difference of guys that have played together all those years. I've been in Mellencamp's band for 25 years now, and it's like I know what everybody's going to do. You you don't even have to, you know, on stage. There's no question about it. Mm -hmm. Right on. Yeah. There's no way to get that except hours. And tours. Lots of tours together, hours together.
3: My history has always been promoting shows. Right. And, and whenever I would talk to people about, you know, uh, running ads or, you know, announcing a show, especially back in the day where we would wait till five o'clock on a Friday, you know, drive time to announce a show. And I was always like, no, I don't want to announce a show at five. I want to announce it at five, 10, you know, right after you play working for the weekend, then announce the big show. <laughs> so, and I was always thinking that. Is there a is there a song that's played more between the five pm and five thirty pm time frame on classic hits and classic rock across the board every Friday? That song's on right somewhere many stations right. It's on somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it it's funny. It's and it's obviously a classic song, but it's that's one of the songs that hasn't lost. It it sounds as good today as it did then. In fact, my son who's sixteen. I told him the other day, I said, yeah, we're going to talk to Mike Reno from, from Loverboy. And, and he said, working for the weekend, that's still one of the greatest songs. <laughs> you know, and I think and I, it's just a song that resonates with everybody. I was like, I've never met a person that's like, oh, that's not a good song. It's like, everybody likes this.
4: Makes me want to put my headband on. There you go.
3: <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Perfect. <laughs>
4: That was definitely a signature look for you. You know what, Hugh? That was actually just another little dink, as I call it. Uh, we were playing in some of the nightclubs at the very beginning. And uh, you remember when you play nightclubs, the 1,000-watt parlaps are about six feet away from you, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. you know, you're just getting baked. And after, you know, I play the first set, I walk into the dressing room and I go, I can't even see out there. I can't even open my eyes because there's so much sweat on my face. So I took my T-shirt off, and I cut the sleeve off, and I put the T-shirt over my head to soak up the water. And then I went back up for the second set, and then I just kept doing it. And then actually, you know, I I switched. I, I went through so many T-shirts; it was starting to cost me. So I started buying these uh, bandanas.
6: It wasn't inspired by some tennis pro at the time.
4: No, sir. It was all inspired by the the hard work of a of a a working man's band.
6: Yeah. Yeah, our drummer Mike Oberly, he he used to wear wristbands and a, a headband as well. They needed
4: it because the hands get sweaty and they will drop yeah that's right?
3: So the, in the mid '80s, with the when when movie soundtracks were like such a huge deal, you know, you guys had a song I think on the Top Gun soundtrack, but the one that resonates to me is the one that you did the the song with Nancy Wilson from Heart, um, "Almost Paradise" on the Footloose soundtrack. How did that come about, and um, you know, and and how did it come about that you know? The, you did it yourself, you know, without the band, I guess.
4: Andy, first off, I don't want to hurt your feelings or anything, but it was Ann Wilson.
3: You're right, it was Ann, my bad.
4: Our manager handed me the song and said, I want you to sing this if you like it, and you can pick whoever you want to sing it with, because it's a duet. And I said, Ann Wilson, she, Well, they used to live in Vancouver, and so we used to go see them all over the place and just watch, watch them play in my mind she was one of the best rock singers out
3: there you, you said a little bit ago you, you made the comment of you know it sounds like lover boy right and so i was listening to a song you guys put out um recently the the song in 2020 give me give me back my life um and i listened to that the other day which i thought was you know obviously um the timing of, of that title is perfect but um tell us a little bit about that song and it sounds exactly like lover boy so you know Tell, tell us about that tune.
4: It's kind of a bluesy song, too. It's got some slide guitar mm-hmm. in it, and it's a little more on the bluesy side. But we've always had the, the bluesy side. Uh, that's kind of where we come from, the rhythm and blues and the blues. The song was basically, initially was written for uh, the JDRF, which we sponsor and do something for every year. And that's the uh, uh, Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation which we like to participate in and primarily it was written for our guitar player, Paul Dean's son, who got juvenile diabetes, I think at the age of three and over the years, couldn't do some of the things all the other kids did. Even when you grew up, you had to be very careful and you watch what you do, watch what you eat, watch where you go, always check your, uh, your blood and everything. It was just such a hard life for this kid. So that song was initially written for Jake Dean, whose uh, juvenile diabetes has been with him since age of three. And it was a nice tribute to him. Paul Dean really you know, put his heart and soul into that one.
3: I'll bet. Yeah. Well, that's a good story. I, I didn't know that. I Obviously, when I saw the title, I just assumed. I was like, well, with the timing of that, that's a perfect title for the year 2020. <laughs> you got more stuff coming out this year?
4: I'm working on a new song right now. Paul's mixing another song. What we tend to do, I, I mentioned it probably earlier. We just uh, we record and we put them on our website. Right. You know, nobody's really buying stuff anymore, anyways. <laughs> so it's, you might as well give it away and get a pat on the back for doing it. Right. Sure. Yep.
3: I noticed where you guys also wrote songs with like John Bon Jovi and uh, Jonathan Cain and others over the years. Whereas a lot of bands, I think, are super ultra competitive. Um, looking back on your history. Um, what made you guys kind of decide to, to work with other people over the years? I had no idea you'd written those some of those songs, which are you know some some big hits. I didn't realize that uh, that those guys were also uh, wrote songs with you guys.
4: Well, Bon Jovi came to town to record and use our producer, our, our, our studio we recorded in. They used Bob Rock as the engineer, Mike Fraser as a second engineer. <clears throat> they came to town to get the Lover Boy sound. I'm sure, you know, I this is no secret, and they had some great songs and they, they wrote some great albums. Uh, but they recorded a a few of their albums here in Vancouver so we got to know them because a lot of times for for the big gang parts you know we'd all kind of stand in the room there'd be eight of us or ten of us and we'd all sing the the chant for whatever you know and uh, we did that for all kinds of groups like (coughs) ACDC, Motley Crue. It was a kind of a situation where there was a studio had two studios one on one side one on the other and so there would be what, you know, I remember one time ACDC was, or uh, Aerosmith was recording on this side and Motley Crue were recording on this side. And we used to drop by to say hi to everybody and, and, and just hang out a little bit. And so the whole thing was kind of like, uh, you know, we got to know each other. So when it came time, we were working on a song. we get together with uh, with John and Richie in, uh, over in New Jersey there. We ended up working on a song that Paul and I ended up, finishing and putting on our album, which was notorious. So that's that's one story. The other one is we had a song going for years, Paul and I. And we never could make it sound complete, you know, to the point where we wanted to put it on a record. And we toured with uh, a journey. We got to know Jonathan Cain very well. And Paul was telling him one day that he, we've got this song, but we can't quite figure out what to do with certain parts. Jonathan said, let me hear it. So Paul went down and they worked on this song and came back and that would be, this could be the night. So it turns out to be co-writes with songs that we'd already kind of started. You know, that's how things get finished.
3: So we like to also delve into kind of the past as a fan. Can you tell us about your first attended concert as a fan that you went to to see?
4: I'm going to say, this is a little diverse, I know this, but there was a group touring through Canada called Chilliwack. Back in the day, they had these songs. One of them was called uh, Groundhog, and one of them was called Lonesome Mary. These were actually big songs on the radio, and I just—I had to go see that show. And I stood right at the front, and I watched this guy sing, and I couldn't believe how he was getting this sound. And it was just him. And different singers have different voices. Uh, Peter Satir is another guy, the bass player for Chicago. So when they came to Vancouver, I actually drove five hours to go to the singing i was the first guy in the room and i ran to the front and i stood right in front of the bass stack you know and waited for this guy to come out he comes out in in cutoffs and uh moccasins to the knee you know and long hair with beads on and and it started singing i went i can't believe how this guy sounds, and I, i yeah you know there's all kinds of things um i also went to see uh uh, John Lee Hooker at at the same place in this little town I grew up in awesome. and he actually walked out and sat in a chair with a microphone on the guitar and a microphone in front of him and he played for two hours and it was some of the best uh, blues music I'd ever heard in my whole life one guy playing all that stuff you can imagine he was a master
3: that's but. awesome thank you so much for your time we appreciate it Mike wish you nothing but the best thank you have a good one. Dang, you, Andy. What a great crew. We've got to do this again. Yeah. You got it.
4: Yeah. Bye-bye. See you, Andy. Take care.
1: Visit the Betfred Sportsbook at I 270 and MD85 in Frederick, right next to Long Shots Off Track Betting. Go to BetfredSports.com for more information and your chance to win exclusive merchandise. Must be 21 or older. Play responsibly. For help, call 1 800 Gambler.
0: With the Baker's Plus card, it's easy to get lower than low prices. For the win! Earn fuel points on every purchase and save up to a dollar a gallon at the pump. The Baker's Plus card. All you do is win. Big, big savings. Sign up now at Baker'sPlus.com and start saving. Bakers, fresh for everyone. Savings may vary by state. Fuel restrictions apply.
5: Save big on your favorites with the buy five or more, save a dollar each sale. Simply buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with your card. Bakers, fresh for everyone.
2: It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football.